You're entering Outer Brightness. Fireflies, quick intro to the intro here for this episode. You'll note that in the intro, I mispronounce our guest, Stephen Pinecker's name. Uh, apologies to Stephen for that, but we were excited to have him on our show. Uh, we were recently on his YouTube program, and there will be a link to that episode in the description. So that brings us to today's episode, Mormon Charismatics. Hey, Fireflies, welcome back to Outer Brightness. As an adolescent growing up in the, in the suburbs of Salt Lake City, Utah, I often heard recounted the charismatic experiences of early Mormons at the dedication of the Kirtland Temple. In the LDS Institute manual titled Church History in the Fullness of Times, this is described as a, quote, Pentecostal season, end quote. The late LDS historian Milton V. Backman wrote that from 21st of January to 1st of May, 1836, quote, probably more Latter-day Saints beheld visions and witnessed other unusual spiritual manifestations than during any other era in the history of the church, end quote. A description of the temple dedication meeting reads as follows. Following the prayer, the choir sang the hymn, The Spirit of God. It had been written especially for the dedication by W.W. Phelps. The sacrament was then administered and passed to the congregation. Joseph Smith and others testified that they saw heavenly messengers at the service. The congregation concluded the seven-hour service by standing and rendering the sacred Hosanna shout, Hosanna, 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 to God and the Lamb. Amen, amen, and amen, repeated three times. Eliza R. Snow said the shout was given, quote, with such power as seemed almost sufficient to raise the roof from the building, end quote. That evening, over 400 priesthood bearers met in the temple while George A. Smith was speaking. A noise was heard like the sound of a rushing mighty wind, which filled the temple and all the congregation simultaneously arose, being moved upon by an invisible power. Many began to speak in tongues and prophesy. Others saw glorious visions, and I beheld the temple was filled with angels, end quote. David Whitmer bore testimony that he saw three angels passing up the south aisle. The people of the neighborhood came running together, hearing an unusual sound within and seeing a bright light like a pillar of fire resting upon the temple. Others saw angels hovering over the temple and heard heavenly singing. I remember hearing these uh, stories recounted as a, as a child and kind of wondering at why uh, church life wasn't like that anymore. Uh, I think other modern Mormons wonder at the absence of such spiritual outpourings in their own religious experience. And, and maybe you're even like a bit like me, uh, a little skeptical of the charismatic section of Christianity that claims such manifestations. Um, so, you know, we're going to talk tonight a little bit more about the Holy Spirit. We've talked about this before, um, but do the gifts of the Holy Spirit uh, continue in the church, particularly the sign gifts? Um, we're excited to have a special guest with us today. Stephen Pinnaker is the host of a fairly new YouTube channel called Mormon Book Reviews. He's a charismatic Christian who reviews books about Mormon history and doctrine. And he reached out to me recently to see if we'd be interested in doing something together. Matthew and I had a, a brief conversation with Stephen the other uh, night, and we found his story to be interesting. Uh, we're both tentative cessationists, so we think it will be interesting for us and for you as listeners to have a conversation with a charismatic Christian. 
We hope this conversation will be a good follow-up to our episodes on the gifts of the Spirit, where we discuss the seventh LDS article of faith. So if you haven't listened to those episodes, you might want to do that before or after listening to our conversation with Stephen. They are episodes 13 and 14 of season four of Outer Brightness. They were published on March 21st and March 28th of 2021. So without further ado, Stephen, welcome to Outer Brightness. Thanks for having me, guys. I really appreciate this. Yeah, we're excited for this. So to kind of kick it off, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, uh, your upbringing, how did you come to faith, how did your faith change in adulthood, and what first got you interested in Mormonism? Um, okay, so I was raised in my the lineage of my family on both sides. I'm pretty much 100% Dutch, and uh, and both sides of the family came from what is called the Christian Reformed Church. The Christian Reformed Church is uh, the more conservative Reformed Church in the United States at the time. Uh, you had the Reformed Church in America, which is the oldest Protestant denomination in this country. And there was a split off in the 19th century because a lot of the new Dutch that came over um, didn't like the fact that, uh, they, well, they wanted to do their services in the vernacular. They didn't like the fact that uh, they allowed Masonic membership in the Reformed Church of America. Uh, there are some cultural differences. So in the area of Grand Rapids and Holland, Michigan, there's a group that basically broke off from the Reformed Church of America and started the Christian Reformed Church. Now, the Christian Reformed Church is often referred to as the Jews of evangelicalism, because even though we're a small church, uh, Zondervan, Erdsman's, uh, Baker Bookhouse, Calvin College, and all these uh, great intellectuals like Alvin Plantinga, Plantinga and all these people that have been very impactful, and odds are the Bible you use is a direct result uh, if you're a fan of the NIV, that was initiated by the Christian Reformed Church. So it's a deep, highly intellectual tradition, uh, which is Calvinism, but this is more of an evangelical slash uh, conservative uh, brand of, you know, high view of scripture. Uh, the Reformed Church in America has become more mainline, whereas the Christian Reformed Church is still tentatively uh, relatively conservative, although um, some of my family members who do not join the charismatic movement actually helped start a new denomination called the United Reformed Church, which broke off from the Christian Reformed Church, and that church is in communion or at least in fellowship with the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. So that kind of gives you a little bit of the lineage of kind of doctrinally where I come from. But interestingly, this is before my time. Um, my parents and much of my family got involved in what's called the charismatic renewal movement. And um, this, this was a very powerful thing that started happening. Um, basically, what we had was Azusa Street. And I know we're going to get into that, you know, the Pentecostal outbreak of the Pentecostal movement in 1906. And that basically then entered into mainline all branches of Christianity, into, including Roman Catholicism all had a vibrant charismatic movement happen. And it was a truly powerful thing that you had. Uh, see, I believe that where there's unity, that's where the spirit is. You know, there's these attempts by man to create these ecumenical movements. But I think that true ecumenical movements are led by the spirit. And I think there are two legitimate ecumenical movements in, the, in Christianity. One is the pro-life movement and the other is the charismatic movement. In other words, those where you see the barriers come down, you see the denominational barriers um, at least in theory, come down because you have a oneness in purpose and in what you're trying to do, whether it's the right to life or it's uh, you know having a united fellowship with an understanding of like the, the gifts of the spirit and not allowing like necessarily creeds get in the way of being able to experience uh, worship with other people who maybe doctrinally disagree with on some level. Well, the school that I attended was started by a bunch of people who were right-wingers within the Christian Reformed Church. 
who were very afraid of the modernism that was creeping into the denomination. But these then right-wingers became charismatic. So here we have a charismatic Calvinistic school that I attended in South Holland, Illinois. Now, just outside of Chicago, you have a very, actually, Roseland was a, in, in the south side of Chicago was a huge Dutch community. But throughout the suburbs of Illinois, you have Holland or South Holland, Illinois, you have Lansing, Illinois, you have Munster, Indiana, Dyer, Indiana, Highland, Indiana. This is like this little, uh, and they have this school right across on the Illinois border called Illini, Illiana uh, High School, which is a Christian Reformed church. And it just, this whole area was all Dutch and um, and and probably a very influential area, second probably only to what you saw in Grand Rapids. So here you have these right-wing Calvinists who are very concerned about modernism entering into the church, and all of a sudden they get the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and they're operating in the gifts and everything like that. As a matter of fact, giving you an example, there was this high-profile Christian Reform minister who uh, this woman goes to um, him and says, the Bible says, I'm, I'm ill. The Bible says that the elders of the church are to anoint me with oil and, and pr pray for healing. Now he goes and he says, I don't, I mean, well, it's biblical. I'll do it, but I don't believe it's gonna, nothing's going to happen. So this guy and the elders went and they, they laid hands on her and poured oil on, on her. And she end up, ends up getting healed. Well, then this pastor, very prominent Christian Reformed pastor, jumps into the charismatic movement. And, uh, and so many people followed in this period of time. So, I mean, that's a mouthful that I just said here, but that gives you just like some context where I'm coming from. So it's like, it's still deeply Calvinistic, but it's also very much influential about the, the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, you know, my father was involved with the Full Gospel Businessmen's Association, which was on the forefront of all of this. I mean, if you want to know, if you don't know what the Full Gospel Businessmen's Association is, that was the spearhead that really brought all these groups together. Catherine Coleman was involved in this and all these other big figures. My father, we would, they would organize healing services where a Catholic priest who, who was, was, would pray over people. I think I told you this the other day, he'd be laying hands on people and he'd have a cigarette dangling out of his mouth. I mean, it, it was just kind of an interesting uh, time. To, I wish I was there to experience what they saw. And the stories I heard were pretty remarkable. The healings that occurred, the miracles, the lives that were transformed. And so, yeah, that's the world that I was born into. So you were born uh, before, you were born after the charismatic movement kind of made its way into the Dutch Reformed Church? I would say I was probably born a few years after it started getting into the Christian Reformed Church, yeah. Okay. And then, and then, it, and then, and it was started manifest. But I don't have much of a memory of this, you know, myself uh, of, of these things because by that time my parents were out of the Christian Reformed Church for years. While I, before I was born, they were out of it. My father basically said, you know, I'm not elect. I'm not one of the elect, Lord. And so he felt like he was going to hell. You know, so that's kind of the dark side of Calvinism. And uh, he was convinced that, well, I'm just not. I just. Well, he really seeked the Lord and he did everything he could. And he, he was actually in the, in the bathtub praying. And all of a sudden he started speaking in tongues, you know, um, and that changed his life, thinking that he was uh, headed for damnation, that he was not one of the elect to uh, being involved, uh, being a key figure in, in locally in the charismatic movement in our community. Interesting. So so by the time you you were born, had they had your parents uh, joined a different denomination or? So they started attending what was a um, a Baptist charismatic church that focused on deliverance. In other words, uh, casting out of demons. Mm -hmm. And this church became so popular that Chicago television stations would come and shoot from there. I think even Geraldo might have even been there at one point. Um, but this church um, 
uh, and this is right around the time of the exorcist. So these camera crews would be coming over to film these people having demons cast out of them in the church. So it was deliverance stuff and it was pretty intense stuff. And I, and I will tell you that it, it did end up becoming somewhat of, it did become an abusive cult. And my parents let, started seeing the signs of that. So they ended up leaving, but there were family members of mine who did stay in that church for a few years and did definitely suffered the effects of being in a cult. But at its peak, there was something going on because it, people's lives were being changed. But then um, uh, there's some stuff with the pastor. He, he really was a messed up guy and, and that had a lot to do with it too. Okay, good. Yeah. So I was going to ask you um, if the, the Christian Reformed Church was was paedo-baptist, but, but you weren't really ever involved with that. So how did you come to faith personally? I was about four or five years old, crying to my mom and said, Lord, I want Jesus in my life. So I um, prayed the sinner's prayer and, you know, <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's my life. And that's, that's how I came to know the Lord, because uh, my mom said, you, it was not initiated by me. You came to me and asked to, that, to be, you know, that you wanted to be born again and have Jesus come into your life. Wow. So as, as an adult, did your faith change and shift at all or? Oh yeah. Yeah. Of course. You know, and this is the thing, you know, I mean, I experienced a lot of things as a child. I mean, I received the baptism of the Holy spirit when I was in fourth grade and uh, we, we can get to the adult stuff, but I just want to give a little context here is that now there are Pentecostals like my friend, Christopher Thomas, who believes that, um, and let many assemblies of God, Church of God, and many of your Pentecostals believe that um, that in order to have shown that you received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, you would have an initial evidence of tongues. Well, I was never taught that. We weren't taught that. We were taught that you know, no, you don't have to have sight. You can have receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit and not necessarily speak in tongues. So this is not a belief that was drilled into me. So we're at this church on the north side of Chicago. Um, it was a large church. It was actually a pastor who was like one of the top rated uh, pastors on Chicago television. And he had a guest speaker who's also a televangelist. Well, and I hate to say televangelist because he was just a local pastor who happened to be broadcast on television. And um, he, he was, I believe he may have been a prophet, but either way, um, I wanted to go up there and have him and be prayed over. And uh, he laid hands on me. And it, there was something like I felt something outside of me like, boom, hit me. And next thing you know, without being so shocked and surprised, I started uttering and speaking. Uh, just And just like, I was so shocked by it because I, I didn't go up there expecting to speak in tongues, but I did. And then I, I fell to the floor and was slain in the spirit, as they call it. Now, later in life, as you get old, now th that story for up until my early 20s, that was like, you know, hey, I felt it. I felt the creator of the universe touch me and I felt the power. Uh, so that, that, that was enough for me well into my twenties. All right. Yeah. So as, as a Latter-day Saint kind of growing up, um, like I said, in the, in the introduction, I, I was well aware of some of the early experiences that Latter-day Saints uh, had with speaking in tongues at the Kirtland temple dedication. Um, but I, it wasn't at all part of my uh, weekly religious experience. Uh, as a as a Latter Day Saint uh, near Salt Lake City, and when I got a little bit older and went on my mission, um, I remember having a conversation with uh, another missionary. We had been in the MTC together, and we were over in Hungary uh, at this point, um, and we were having a conversation about uh, some things. And I and I kind of asked him what he thought about speaking in tongues. What you know, what is it? You know, because at the MTC, the Missionary Training Center, for for those who might not know what it is. Um, you're very much taught that, that the gift of tongues is given to Latter-day Saint missionaries uh, to be able to learn the language uh, very quickly. And, 
And I was in my first area of my mission when I'm having this conversation with, with this other elder. And, um, you know, I was struggling a bit with the language, but it was, it was coming a bit quicker than I expected it to, uh, in terms of being able to understand people. Now speaking was a different thing. Um, and so I've, that's why we were having this conversation. And, uh, I asked him if he, if he thought it made sense that it was, um, you know, just missionaries learning languages, because I, I, I've heard of other Christians, you know, like speaking in tongues that are unintelligible and, uh, he told me he was from the Ogden area and he told me about uh, this experience that he had going to this uh, charismatic church. And he said that they kind of put on a video that kind of showed people how to, how to speak in tongues or how to begin to speak in tongues. And he said, I, I don't, I don't buy it because how can you show a video to teach people, you know? Um, so that was kind of my, for a long time, that was kind of my understanding of, of speaking in tongues. And then uh, when I, moved out here to the Cincinnati area and got married. Um, my wife's grandmother uh, lived down in um, Middlesbrough, Kentucky, which is right by Cumberland Gap, uh, Tennessee, Virginia area. Um, and we would go down there and visit. Her grandfather was in a nursing home and her grandmother would uh, was, a, was a really good uh, Christian woman, would go every, every day to take care of him. And we would go down to visit and driving down, I would see on I-75 signs uh, on churches advertising, you know, four square gospel or uh, five, what's it called? The fivefold gospel uh, or full gospel, you know, to see these signs. And it, it kind of made me wonder like, what is this? This is so now something I've heard of. So I looked it up and uh, learned a little bit more about it. And then down when we did get down to Middlesbrough, one time I remember there were, there was a church setting up uh, a revival tent. And I, you know, had no idea what a revival tent was, you know, so I asked Angela, my wife, and she told me, and I, you know, there was another situation where I was like, whoa, this is like a different world for me coming from Salt Lake City, you know. Um, and then I met a guy at work uh, who was uh, a charismatic Christian. Um, he was a Pentecostal and uh, we would have conversations mostly about basketball. He was a Celtics fan. Uh, I loved Larry Bird when I was growing up and, and the Celtics. And so uh, we would have conversations, but occasionally we would start talking about religion. And um, I remember one time talking to him about uh, Mormonism. Uh, I wanted to give him a book of Mormon. I talked to him about the Kirtland temple dedication and the experiences that people had there. And he, he was like, Whoa, that's 70 years before Azusa street. And so I was like, well, what's Azusa street. So why don't you, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about uh, what the Azusa street revival was um, give a, just kind of a brief history of, of, how that grew into the modern charismatic movement? Well, I think it's a, it's a wonderful story because one of the things that um, that I that we see in much of the church is uh, a lot of barriers were put up, um, and like Martin Luther King Jr. said, you know, the most segregated hour of the week is during church, and it and largely still is today in this country. One of the great things, I mean, think about this, it's 1906, and you have this black man named William Seymour, I believe it's, it's Seymour is, for, is his last name for sure, and he, um, they start having these manifestations, like basically in the livery stable, um, and uh, pe people, where they actually, so they were looking for revival and all this kind of stuff, but then the tongues started, and uh, this was a new thing, and so then all of a sudden, next thing you know, you have white people involved, and you have um, Mexicans and you have a large, there's a large population of Armenians in Southern California. Um, and they fled to California because in the, in, the, in the 19th century, there was this boy prophet. Then these people were proto-Pentecostals, let's just call them. This boy prophet prophesied, it's time for us to flee. 
And these these people, these Armenians believe that this many some of these people heeded his call and they left. And that was the initial migration. One of the initial migrations of Armenians to Southern California was this boy prophet who predicted that there's a, this great calamity would happen. Well, the Armenian genocide would not be too, you know, would, would start uh, probably about a dozen years after the Azusa Street or so. So um, that to them was that was a prophecy. That was a confirmation of prophecy. So here you have a situation where you have these this mixture of people that's very unique. Okay. And then just this amazing outpouring happens. So the Azusa Street revival essentially goes from about 1906 to 1915. And you have uh, and you have this gentleman, a white gentleman by the name of Charles Parnham comes into the scene. And he actually actually introduces the doctrine of um, initial evidence of tongues is a sign of receiving the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Um, so that's that doctrine kind of gets introduced in there. Now there's a fallout between Seymour and Parnham, uh, but essentially those are like the two main names that are associated with uh, with Azusa Street. So miracles happen. Uh, the racial barriers came down. Um, people were loving and fellowshipping with each other in a very unique way, in a way that I think is how the early church, how Christ wants the church to operate. The barriers were brought down and the people and many of these people were poor people and they were destitute. They were the very people that Jesus went to in his ministry, you know, the poor and the marginalized and the undereducated people. And they started this revival, which guys, this is astonishing. 1906, it, this revival has a direct result of a half billion people are now charismatic slash Pentecostal. In the next couple of decades, it's going to rival this Islam. And if you're looking for a latter day, <laughs> some kind of latter day move of God, uh, one could look at that and say, maybe perhaps that might be a sign of one, although my views on the end times have since changed. But it's still uh, a very fascinating history because it came out of nowhere. It's something that no man could have seen coming. Um, and it's kind of like how God just kind of likes to throw a curveball at man. You know, all, all these most of your theologians are, you know, they're, they're, they're very, very educated. They're, many of them are still very Calvinistic and Princeton is still very Calvinistic. And you, you have a lot of intellectual uh, Christianity in 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 the land, and um, and and then you just have something like this just come out of nowhere. And so sometimes I think that when things that just happen like that, the spontaneity of the spirit, to me, that's kind of a sign of God's working uh, working something new. And that's a sign that God has His hand in it. That if man couldn't have seen it coming, then I believe that it was something that God was involved in. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, well, I was as I was preparing for this episode too, I was kind of reading, watching some documentaries. And reading a little bit, but there's so much to the charismatic movement that it's hard to study everything. So I, I read some key people a little bit about their stories, and they're fascinating. But but I've also read too about how even before 1906, there were uh, I guess you could call it charismatic type worship. Um, like you have uh, the Shakers and, and and other groups that kind of had these charismatic type experiences. So do you feel if, that they influenced? Um, you know, the Azusa Street Revival or, you know, like modern charismatic movement? Or do you think that that's kind of like a totally separate thing? Well, see, this is my view. I think the biggest mistakes that a lot, a lot of charismatics and Pentecostals make is that they believe that these movements were like, if you watch like charismatics from the 1970s, they're talking like, these are the end days. We're in living in the last days right now. They believe this 50 something years ago. Okay. Um, the people in, in, were experiencing these Pentecostal things. They were thinking that the return was coming soon. And uh, you, you would see this throughout history that because they would see these manifestations, they were absolutely convinced. I think the biggest mistake a lot of people make is that they attach these signs and wonders and these miracles with something that has to do with the end of days. I postulate that essentially it's always been there. Um, 
I believe that we're, there have been people who have been baptized in the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues since the very beginning and throughout the history, if, if not most of the history of the church. I think it's always been there. Um, I think that the Desert Fathers, nobody was there to witness it, but I think the Desert Fathers were probably speaking in tongues. You know what I'm saying? I think the aesthetics were, I think um, a lot of people were encountering the Holy Spirit and his presence, but they had to do it in their homes because they would be uh, drawn and quartered or burnt at the stake if it came out that they were doing these kind of things because it undermines the authority of the church, you see. So I, I don't think that this is necessarily a new thing. I think that the Holy Spirit's been there all along throughout the history of the church. And I think we can see little like the shakers and little things like, you know, even with the Quakers, you, you can kind of even see something there. You know, I do think that you kind of see glimpses of it throughout the history of Christendom, where you can see that there was some, that the Holy Spirit has been operating all along and that there have been people that have been operating in the gifts of the Spirit for the last 2000 years. I think that's because it's become so big and so broad and it's growing at such a substantial number. You know, these a lot of Christians believe, oh, there's going to be an end time harvest and revival. None of that's really in the scripture. That's just kind of like an idealized view of how they think it's going to all go down. Um, so I think the biggest mistake that often these people make is that they tie it into the end times. I think it's something that was there from the very beginning. This church started with this and it continues on forward for 2000 plus years. Okay. Interesting. Thanks for that uh, response. I know we didn't have that as one of our pre-vetted questions but <laughs> so so you said that you don't believe that um just a quick quick question you said you don't believe that you have to have this uh this kind of speaking in tongues or this you know this second i don't know what you would call it the the anointing of the holy spirit or or some kind of demonstration of charismatic gifts in order to be a, a saved christian yeah and so i don't believe that baptism of the holy spirit is a prerequisite for salvation Okay, so I'm, I'm not one of those people who's, you know, and I don't believe in the initial evidence. Now, my friend Christopher, the Pentecostal Church of God, he, the theologian, probably um, at least doctrinally believes that that's something that's important. That's because what their church believes. But um, I don't believe that that is the case. And I will tell you too, Paul, when we were talking about, you were talking about how this, this video, like how to speak tongues. See, to me, that's not legit. You know, it's almost like fake it till you make it. I know charismatics like that. I know people who could get really, really good at speaking in tongues. And, uh, but I, I was always mistrustful of it because I felt like it was an act or that they were using it to manipulate people. So to me, I'm not saying that everybody who's received the baptism spoke speaking in tongues that way is necessarily not legit, but I think the va a large portion of people that kind of just see, I think what happens is, you know, how like they do these neurological studies where they have these people um, speaking in tongues and they run a CAT scan on them. Okay. To me, that's just all the flesh. Like if this person like, okay, I'm in the doctor's office, I can just start speaking in tongues. And then they're going to put me under this CAT scan. And then they're going to run this CAT scan and they say, yeah, basically their brain just shuts down all the logical faculties and the brain get, gets shut down when they're doing this, but they're doing the people who are just faking it till you make it. I don't think you can just call upon the Holy Spirit. Say, okay, Holy Spirit, I want to start speaking in tongues. I think it's spontaneous. And I don't think it could be measured scientifically because unless I happen to start speaking in tongues and somebody has a CAT scan right there. Um, I'm just saying, because there's been a lot of studies about people speaking in tongues. And I think that they're studying that aspect of tongues and they're not speaking, talking about the tongues that I feel quote unquote is real, if you will. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great point. And, and uh, in our discussion before this episode, we talked about how you, you said you're, no longer a Calvinist, but you think like a Calvinist. And I think that kind of shows in how you were just describing that is like, you're, you're maybe not skeptical, but you're very analytical and trying to discern uh, what you would consider more authentic demonstrations of gifts versus the ones that you fake. Like, like you were describing, I saw an episode of, of Sid Roth's uh, channel. He's, he's a kind of a televangelist and he says, 
he was teaching people how to do tongues. And he says, well, just start by making baby sounds and then it'll start to evolve into other things. And I was like, uh, I don't know. I don't see that, how that works in scripture. So I kind of, I'm kind of with you on that one. So yeah, thank you for sharing that. So you mentioned, uh, mentioned the gift of tongues. That's one of the, one of the gifts of the gifts of the spirit in charismatic Christianity. So what are the other hallmark, um, what are the other hallmarks of charismatic Christianity or other gifts of the spirit that you would, that would you would, you would put within charismaticism? I mean, I think all of them, I guess you could say that anything that's listed in, you know, the gifts of the spirit, uh, the fruits of the spirit, the gifts of the spirit. I think that's all part of, you know, the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I think that, um, I, I, like I said, I don't think there's a certain process that one goes through. I think that some people have the gift of discernment. Some people have the gift of healing and some people have, and so I don't believe that like you can have all, I mean, you possibly can, but I don't even think that's the important. Um, I think it's important just to look at them as a gift. The Lord gives me this gift. Okay. And he's, he's given me this gift. Um, he's given me the gift of discernment. He's given me some gifts. Uh, I, I guess I don't, it's hard for me to explain what they all are, but I, there are certain times when um, I just know something and I just know it to be true or the Lord tells me something. And this doesn't happen that frequently. It, really, it doesn't happen that often, actually. But when it happens, like, I know it. I know the voice of God. And I know he's telling me something. And I know the, the, the and I think the big thing is, 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 is mainly the biggest thing to me about um, following or the, about being baptized in the Holy Spirit and following the Spirit is just allow the Spirit to operate. Put your ego aside and all your plans aside and just say, all right, Holy Spirit, just operate through me. And, and don't let all the intellect up here prevent you from um, allowing the Holy Spirit to operate through you. Because see, when you try to use this, your, your brain, I'm pointing to my head, uh, that's your flesh getting involved and in, in blocking the move of the Spirit. So I think sometimes you just have to park that to the side and say, okay, intellectually, I don't know what's going on here, but I'm going to let the Spirit operate. I, because, and, and that's kind of how you let it happen. So I think that all the gifts are available. Um, I think some people can receive gifts uh, and, and operate in very different ways. Um, I think the Lord just uses his vessels in any way that he please in any way he pleases. And, and if you're just willing to go and say, Lord, just use me, um, let the spirit operate through me. I think the Lord will use you uh, any way that he chooses to use you. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. And um, classical cessationism would, would agree that most of the gifts of the spirit in scripture are still operating, you know, like gifts of faith and words of wisdom and things like that. It's just that uh, like Paul referenced earlier, maybe we'll talk a little bit more about it later, but um I've, I've had discussions with charismatics. I don't like this phrase, but the sign gifts, you know, that's, that's what's termed uh, specifically tongues, prophecy and healings. And so those are, those are kind of like the main three. Is that correct? The, of the, of the distinctive gifts of charismatic tongues, prophecy and healing. Yeah. I would definitely say that would be the big easy. Yeah. Okay. I uh, just want to, just want to make sure I don't, uh, you know, mm-hmm. thank you for that. Okay. So, um, so you talked about how you kind of grew up in the, Christian Reformed Church is that what it's called? Um, that my family came from the Christian Reformed Church, yeah, and that's that's a very important and influential denomination. Um, like I said earlier, but yes, it's it's that's where our family came from. But then most of my family got into the Charismatic Renewal movement, right? So you so you came out of that movement, but you said also that your family was still very conservative and still had kind of Calvinistic understanding of, of salvation and mm-hmm. and uh, predestination things like that. So. Um, Typically, when you think of Pentecostalism, that's not what you think of, you know, at least at least I don't. I don't think of uh, Calvinistic uh, views of salvation and predestination and Pentecostalism. So um, how does your kind of background in Calvinism 
how does it interact with your engagement with the charismatic movement now? Okay. So I think this is where the distinction between charismatic and Pentecostal is kind of fundamental because the charismatic movement is a form of Pentecostalism that entered into the main line or the mainstream of Protestantism. So many of the people, um, many people still stayed in their churches, stayed Methodist, stayed, um, you know, Lutheran or whatever, Catholic, whatever, and, and operated with the gifts of the spirit. I mean, there's a Catholic parish that in the town next door to me that every Saturday night had a healing service with the charismatic priest. OK, so um, the, the thing is, is that so so in many cases, the charismatic movement, you have people that still hold on to the doctrines and creeds of their churches, but they also embrace the baptism of the Holy Spirit to operate in their lives. Sometimes it's often more personal. Maybe they'll go to their church on uh, their regular church on Sunday, but on Saturday night, they might be with some Pentecostals or worshiping with them in that sense. Uh, and so. Uh, so doctrinally, what you'll find with charismatics is they often still retain much of the doctrinal heritage of the church that they came from, okay? Whereas Pentecostalism is kind of completely different because these people didn't have much education, didn't have much theology to, to go on, to be honest with you. So, um, so that influences the charismatic movement. Now, you do have parachurch groups like Calvary Chapel and the Vineyard Movement and all these other churches that become de facto denominations as a result of the charismatic movement. Um, and so, and to, and to varying degrees, Calvinism is something that's still there. I mean, you, you know, the idea of it, you know, like, I would say a lot of them still have kind of reformed views on, um, on like Calvary Chapel, I'd say is probably more less Armenian and more leaning towards like eternal security. I think that they, I don't know, I think they would lean more in that direction. So it's, and I, and I, you know, so it's kind of, it's very, it gets really, I know you said you study some history and you can say it gets very complicated. So it's important to differentiate between Pentecostalism and generically and charismatic, because I think charismatic still retains some of maybe the traditional doctrines of the churches uh, to varying degrees. Now, like I said, I think like a Calvinist, I no longer consider myself a Calvinist for other issues, but yeah, I think I was, my worldview is still steeped in a Calvinistic worldview. I still see it very much like that. So you, yeah. So we, we talked about in our discussion before how you, you examine things analytically. And uh, so, so would you say that's kind of what influenced you the most? Like you said, when you think like a Calvinist, is that what you mean? Yeah. So like, even when I was a young kid, and everybody else in the family was talking about, oh, did you see that miracle or hear this story about some healing in Africa? Or even some of my family were into like these people where the gold fillings, you know, they get prayed over and their their fillings would turn into gold and gold flakes. And I, even from the beginning, I was like, there's no, this isn't real. I, I rejected most. So let me just put it this way to both of you. I think about 99% of the criticisms that you would have of the charismatic movement, I would probably share with you. So uh, I'm, I was always from the very beginning. So I would get into arguments with my family. I'd be like, no, 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 Benny, I don't think Benny, this Benny Hinn's real, or I think this is fake, or I don't, you know, but they would be like, oh, there were miracles in the Bible. So for me to question like Benny Hinn would almost be questioning what Jesus was doing. And I was trying to say, no, no, no. I'm just saying that if, 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 if it's real, it's real. There's no debating it. Like when there's a real healing, uh, that's real, you know? So when the skeptics say like, why doesn't God heal amputees? Right. I mean, I get that. Right. You know, I know there's some problematic things with the healing ministry and I understand that there's some quandaries that one falls into. So I'm highly skeptical and highly dubious of most of these claims, but I do believe that it does happen and it can happen. And I've seen it happen myself. Yeah. Great for, thank you for explaining that. And, and I, I wouldn't classify myself as like a hard cessationist, it's kind of strange because even within cessationism, similar to charismaticism, there's there's a spectrum, and there's some that would be almost close to deist level of 
cessationism where they're like, God hardly does anything in the world today. Yeah. So I would, I wouldn't definitely not do, say that for sure. Um, I think most typical, uh, you know, like reform types would say that God does perform miracles. It's just that he doesn't give the gift of healing or prophecy to a specific person. Um, but, but through prayer and, you know, faith, he can perform those. Um, well, so, and I, be, and I believe it's God, uh, it's, it's the spirit, it's the spirit that's doing, it's God that's doing the healing. It's God that's doing the prophecy. You're just, you're just a vessel. Right. And, um, there's, there's a lot of, there's actually a very large growing movement of Calvinists that are not really, I'm not sure, really sure they qualify themselves as charismatics, but they're, they call themselves cautious continuationists. I don't know if you've heard of those types like Wayne Grudem. Um, he's, they, they kind of, they're not full blown charismatics, but they're kind of, they're not willing to shut the door on the charismatic gifts. They're, they're willing to leave that door open. So do you know much about them or do you have well, an opinion I, on them? Are they, I've had in the past some affiliation with Sovereign Grace, the Sovereign Grace movement, which is like a charismatic Calvinist group. And they might be an offshoot of that, but there is, there is a movement called Sovereign, Sovereign Grace and it's been around since the 1990s. And I know that they had some sex scandals a few years ago, so I don't know how they're doing anymore. But no, I haven't heard of that particular movement that you were just telling me about. Yeah, there's the Wayne Grudem in particular is, is one that's very well known. I think John Piper would probably call himself a, a cautious okay. continuationist. Mm-hmm. Um, but some people call them pragmatically. They call them basically uh, cessationists, but they're just unwilling to <laughs> to call themselves cessationists kind of thing. So um but yeah, there's there's a lot of discussion, I think, even in Calvinism today uh, about, you know, the gifts and, and how they would operate or how they should operate. So it's it's a it's a conversation. I think that's that's kind of a lot of people are conscious of it. Maybe it's just because in America and throughout the world, it has been exploding. Like you said, you know, with 500 million people, it's kind of hard not to encounter it. <laughs> so I, I find it fascinating. It's something I studied too, coming out of Mormonism, because, yeah, that's that's what I thought. I was like, well. I want to find a church that has these gifts, you know, because I felt like that was a sign of the true church. And so I studied a lot of it. And um, there's a book called uh, The Final Word uh, by O. Palmer Roberts, Robertson, I think. And he's kind of from a reformed perspective about how uh, the Bible is, is sufficient. And we'll kind of talk about that a little bit later. So we'll talk about the sufficiency of scripture versus gifts. But I thought it was an interesting book. And um, but at the same time, I think sometimes we Calvinists, we, you know, we call some people, sometimes they call us the frozen chosen. You know, sometimes, sometimes I think we get so nervous about crossing lines that, you know, like we don't want to make anything look anything close to Roman Catholic worship or, or this worship that I think sometimes we might take it a little bit too far. Um, but yeah, so, uh, that's just some thoughts I had in my mind related to Calvinism and, and, uh, the charismatic movement. I, I don't think they're entirely incompatible. Like you said, uh, charismatic, the gifts of the spirit, one's views on the gifts of the spirit does not preclude different views on soteriology, which is the doctrine of salvation for our listeners. Or, or different views on end times, um, all these different topics. So, uh, yeah. So I'm just, I'm, I'm just excited to talk to you about it because I, I think it's an interesting topic. Good, I'm glad. I'm glad. Thank you. You're listening to Outer Brightness, a podcast for post Mormons who are drawn by God to walk with Jesus rather than turn away. Outer brightness. Outer brightness. Outer brightness. There's no weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth here. Except when Michael's hangry, that is. Hangry, that is. Hangry, that is. We were all born and raised in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, headquartered in Salt Lake City, Utah. 
more commonly referred to as the Mormon faith. All of us have left that religion and have been drawn to faith in Jesus Christ based on biblical teachings. The name of our podcast, Outer Brightness, reflects John 1.9, which calls Jesus the true light, which gives light to everyone. We have found life beyond Mormonism to be brighter than we were told it would be, and the light we have is not our own. It comes to us from without, thus Outer Brightness. Our purpose is to share our journeys of faith and what God has done in drawing us to His Son. We have conversations about all aspects of that transition, the fears, challenges, joys, and everything in between. We're glad you found us, and we hope you'll stick around. All right, I want to jump in here with a kind of a follow-up question and some some comments, maybe. Um, so I was listening the other day to uh, some podcasts that you recommended where uh, John DeLynn from Mormon Stories interviewed uh, Dr. Chris Thomas, who's uh, probably the one of the foremost uh, Pentecostal theologians. And and I have to be honest, I was I was kind of taken by surprise listening to Dr. Thomas. I hadn't I listened to Mormon stories quite a bit, but I hadn't listened to those episodes. And, um, you know, I, I, I had kind of had this, uh, and it, you know, it's, it's a shame I'm convicted of it because I kind of had this view of Pentecostals as, you know, not really theologically astute and listening to Dr. Thomas, uh, I could tell that he takes uh, the Bible very, very seriously, um, and seeks to divide the word appropriately. And so I was, I was kind of convicted listening to him, um, and, you know, he kept using this one phrase that I, that was kind of new to me that the fivefold uh, gospel, right? And so I, I kind of looked that up and, um, you know, Wikipedia, of course, but it says that uh, it's kind of like a fivefold theme of salvation, uh, sanctification, spirit, baptism, divine healing, and the coming kingdom. Um, so I'm, I'm a little curious, what, like, what is spirit baptism? Is that, is that like an event that, that someone has in their life and then the gifts flow from that? Or is it specifically is spirit bas- baptism specifically speaking in tongues? Okay. So these, this is interesting because see, I, I, I was aware of the fivefold gospel, but that's not really our tradition, but I, we, I did attend assemblies of God churches. So I would interact and that's very common with assemblies of God, which is very similar to the church of God that he's a theologian and, and a pastor. And so, um, I guess I could say that my experience with the baptism of the Holy Spirit would qualify as spirit baptism in their minds because um, I, it was an event. It, it was a it was a process where I went and felt the power of, of the Holy Spirit hit me, and then I started uttering in tongues. So they would go and say, "Yeah, you're legit. Like that's the way it's supposed to go." But I didn't have that doctrinal view even afterwards that, oh, this is how you receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So I think it's, I really believe the Holy Spirit can enter. So I guess with the Pentecostals, it's more like it's an event, like, like the salvation experience. Like, you know, you ask Jesus into your heart and, you know, sinner's prayer or however you achieve salvation and what, what the process is, that's an event. And then they would say like another event happened like Pentecost Sunday you know, when something, Jesus said something even greater than I, right? And then, then we have, boom, this powerful manifestation of the Holy Spirit. So this was like a separate event. These were already people who were saved. These were followers of Christ. And then a separate event happened where they received the, what we call the baptism of the Holy Spirit with gifts of tongues. And, and, and then basically what happens is you, you receive this gift and then it will, uh, it will start manifesting its way. And, and so you may not know what gifts you have until all of a sudden they just happen like the gift of discernment like i have i i have what i believe is a very strong gift of discernment where i've had things where i was able to see right through somebody or know something about somebody that nobody else could have known so um so i know that's a gift that i've had and 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 
when I was a very young child, the one, my one of this pastor goes to my goes to me, and 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 this pastor was talking to me, and my mom, and he's like, "Well, what do you want to be when you grow up?" I said, "I'm going to be a prophet." And I, this pastor was so taken back. He goes to my mom. He said, "I think he's going to be a prophet." So that's the world I was in, right? So I don't know if I <laughs> like I can predict the future or anything like that. But I'm just saying that you know that was always something that was very important to me early on. So the I. Uh, so yeah, the doctrinal stuff, like the fivefold stuff, that's a Pentecostal thing. I wasn't really brought into that. I was, I always believed that, you know, when you're saved and you accept Jesus Christ in your heart, there's an aspect of the Holy Spirit that's operating in your life at that moment. Okay. Um, so I don't, but I also believe that many people from all walks of life um, often have an encounter, like almost a Damascus Road encounter where they have a powerful, almost physical experience with the divine. And it's and, and, and it is something different and it's real. Um, it feels real at the time. Now, there have been times when I did feel it and thought this isn't real. So I have to say I've been able to differentiate what's real and what's maybe the flesh where I'm trying. I'm really trying to make it happen. OK, so um, so I just kind of think that's how it operates, how that operates is that it. Uh, I guess if you watch that interview with Christopher. And I hope you watched my interviews with Christopher on my Mormon book reviews channel as well, but <laughs> because I did a three-part interview with him too, Paul. But um, uh, one of the things that Christopher um, mentioned was, uh, darn it, lost my train of thought. Um, I'll get it in a second here. Um, I, I just, I just missed, lost my train of thought there. I'm really sorry. But basically, um, I just think that it's possible that the Holy Spirit can operate any way that it chooses to. It can enter your life any way that it wants to. And it doesn't have to necessarily be a particular process that you have to go through. I think the, 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 the Lord works in mysterious ways. And I just leave it at that. Yeah. Yeah. Good. So Matthew was mentioning kind of some of the cautious continuationists. Um, I, I was listening to an episode of Remnant Radio recently. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that podcast or not. Um, but it's a couple of guys they they have on uh, pastors and theologians from a wide spectrum of of Christianity, and uh, the the goal is to kind of challenge their own uh, beliefs to make sure you know iron sharpens iron and make sure they're they're not uh, you know shutting things off that that they shouldn't you know that kind of thing. Just hear other people and their experiences, and and they had on um, Max Lucado, who is you know, very well-known author. Um, and I read, I remember reading his book, uh, he chose the nails, uh, when I was, a uh, first married and it had a really, uh, profound impact on me as a, as a Latter-day Saint at the time. Um, and I've read several of his other books since then, but they had him on and he was talking about how, uh, only recently in his private prayer life has he begun to pray in tongues and it, I kind of took me aback. I was, you know, out working the yard and listening and thought, wow, that's, that's interesting. And it, it, it made me think of um, a time er very, very early on in, in my marriage when, um, you know, we had three young children and I was uh, working two jobs, uh, trying to figure out how I could stop working two jobs so I could go back to school. And um, it was a super stressful time. I was working eight hours uh, during the day and then I would go and deliver pizza at night and I'd drive around and I spent, you know, most of my day away from uh, Angela and our kids. And then I would come home and need to uh, attend to 
my wife's needs and you know, her, her call on my life. And um, it was just super stressful. And I remember driving around, I think I mentioned to you the other day that I would drive around and listen to uh, Christian radio um, through the Bible with J Vernon McGee was a big program I listened to during those drives uh, while, while delivering pizza. And um, I just remember this one time just being super stressed out and driving around and I was praying, uh, trying to just kind of get in a good, in a good head and heart space Um, and just started speaking something that was not, (laughs) not English, you know, and it wasn't Hungarian, the other language that I speak fluently. Um, and I didn't know what to make it of it, make of it at the time, you know, I was a little taken aback by it, thought, you know, am I, am I going crazy? What's, what's happening here? You know, and then I remember, um, after I left the LDS church and, uh, started attending a Christian church. I was in Sunday school and we were working through the book of Romans when we got to Romans uh, chapter eight, uh, verse 26 and 27, um, which says, likewise, the spirit helps us in our weakness for we do, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Um, and I, you know, that was another experience where I thought back to that time in my car. Uh, and it is something that I still uh, sometimes experience uh, in, and I'm a little, I'm a little uh, cautious about it. A little, a uh, little bit, uh, I don't know, skeptical or just uh, maybe I'm just analytical about it. I think about it and wonder, you know, because it does, it does seem to happen when I'm in super stressful periods of my life. Um, but it does happen in conjunction with prayer when I'm alone. So I don't know what to make of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one of the reasons why I say I'm kind of a tentative cessationist. Well, um, that so. is very, very interesting to me, and uh, I want to explore that with you. Um, one thing I also want to point out is you're telling me about Max Lucado, um, Archbishop of Canterbury speaks in tongues. Okay. So this is, this is as mainstream Christianity as it gets now, guys. I mean, this is the mainstream, <laughs> you know? Um, so I think that's very fascinating, the story. Now, this is what I would tell you. Okay. Cause the analytical part of us, all of us would say he's under a lot of stress. And when you're under a lot of stress, these kind of things happen, right? That's the analytical part, but also maybe look at it as a gift, right? That's the comforter, right? That's at your time of need, something of the spirit touched you, right? So I would say that while you're experiencing it, just embrace it and just see where it goes, okay? You, You have time to analyze it after the fact. But I find that to be very fascinating that while you're LDS, this happened to you, and this still continues on now and then. See, now I have a, see, this is the thing. I walked away from evangelicalism and a lot of this stuff for like almost 20 years because I was just so sick of the nonsense that I was dealing with. And so I was able to park the spirit aside and kind of ignore it. And, and it, it wasn't, it, I thought it was effectively gone. But the second I started re-engaging again, all of a sudden it's like, there you are again. You're intruding on me again. Okay. I guess I, this is just what I have to do. This is part of who I am ever since the very beginning. Um, I mean, when I say the very beginning, my mom was on birth control and then she's hearing this one Christian reformed pastor who used then became charismatic. He's this radio preacher locally. And he starts talking out against birth control. She feels convicted, gets off the pill and has me and my younger sister. So the Lord kind of told her, Hey, get off the pill. And then as I'm an infant, I have four other siblings. My neighbor who's a devout Catholic. There was something about me as even a child where she would go and she, she went and baptized me with a Catholic baptism, right? All my life. And that's highly unusual. And that's not, and and technically I'm in the eyes of the Catholic church, a baptized member of the Catholic church. I just found this out like a year ago. So it really struck me as I started looking back that when all the times where 
uh, you know, I realized what was normal to me was not normal for most people. So the idea that um, that this, this Holy Spirit in many times throughout my life would be very much involved and present, and I, that would, I just took for granted. Later on, as I get older and I start getting analytical, I can break it down and say, okay, well, this and that, and you're under a lot of stress, or you were taught, you were, because you're a child, you're influenced by the surroundings, and you didn't have the ability to you know, process this information correctly. And I get all that, you know, I understand that, but you know, I'm, I'm older now. And all of a sudden the spirit comes back into the picture, just like that. Like, no, I was here all along, Steve. You just, you've just been kind of ignore me, you know? So what I'm saying to you, Paul, is I, I just find that really fascinating. And I, I really think that's something that you shouldn't be afraid of. Um, you love Jesus, right? And of course, and, and you want, you want to be a servant of his and you want to uh, be an instrument, be used as an instrument for God. And you were kind of given a gift there that I think that you should be um, to nurture and just kind of work with it and see where it goes. I'm not telling you you're going to be full-blown charismatic and be rolling on the floors, but I think you're, you're given a gift there. I think that's a real privilege that you have. And I think you should, you should definitely um, see where that leads. Yeah. Thank you for that. It's, it's definitely something that, um, just in my private life, it, it, it more often than not happens when I'm uh, driving around even today and I'm by myself and just thinking about life and things that are going on and praying. And um, cause a lot of times I'll, I'll pray while I drive. Um, it's just time when I'm alone and can think about things. And um, yeah, just, it, it's not all the, not every time, but uh, you know, occasionally oh. it just, uh, just comes on me. And, and well, all I can say so. is you've spoken in tongues more than I have. And so that's a gift. I think that if I were to talk to other charismatics and Pentecostals and tell them the situation, I think nine out of 10 of them would say, oh yeah, he's baptized in the Holy Spirit. Interesting. Yeah. Cause I've never really thought about that. And, and, you know, we talked to the other day about um, how I'm a, I uh, attended a seminary that is part of the American restoration movement that kind of comes from Alexander Campbell and Barton W. Stone. And of course they have the whole Cane Ridge revival. So they have a background in kind of a charismatic, uh, uh, experience that kind of birthed their movement as well. Um, and, uh, but, but today, uh, as I was attending, uh, the seminary, uh, it's, I think cessationism is a pretty, uh, strong position, uh, among a lot of, uh, members of that movement today. Um, and I'm, you know, there's been a couple of times, uh, at church, um, when I was not present, <laughs> but I did hear, uh, from others, things that happened. Uh, there was, the, the church I attend a few years back um, started doing uh, worship nights on uh, other nights of the week other than than uh, Sunday. They would just come together to worship, uh, sing and praise and and do nothing else. There wouldn't be necessarily a message, just just singing and praise. And um, at, at one of the first uh, times that they did that, there was a, a young man who started dancing in the aisle and it, you know, from my experience, you know, uh, going to that church, uh, you know, you may hold your hands like this, or maybe like this, you know, maybe both hands, you know, kind of thing, uh, as we're praising, but, um, dancing in the aisle was not something that, <laughs> that you would see people do. So when this young man did it, um, I was told that, uh, you know, one, one older gentleman in the congregation kind of approached him and, and tried to, kind of let him know it's not really appropriate. And others were kind of like, wait a minute, you know, like if he's, if he's moved upon to do that and he's, and he's praising God, why, why would you stop him to do, stop him from doing that? You know? Um, so there was that, but then there was also another time when I wasn't present when uh, I guess someone 
had come to the church and had been attending for a, f- a month or so and um, had come from more of a, I, I don't know what background, whether it was Pentecostal or, or what it might be where people in the congregation might get a message in the middle of a sermon and stand up and speak it. Um, and he did that and it kind of prompted uh, church security to kind of <laughs> take him out and ask what he was doing, you know, <laughs> because he was kind of criticizing uh, the pastor who was preaching at the time. And, and so they kind of pulled him out into the, into the foyer and asked him, you know, questions and that kind of thing. Um, so there's experiences like that, that, that happened even, even in our church that it was like, what's, what's going on, you know? Yeah. Um, so for those reasons, you know, mm-hmm. uh, with my own personal experiences, uh, I still have tended, tended to be, well, a little cautious about it, but you know, it's something that I can't, uh, can't fully, uh, deny cause it happens. So, yeah. And this is the thing. Okay. Um, the first part about the guy, he's just there for a month and he stands up and starts talking. Um, I don't think that's appropriate. Um, because right. so and, and, and criticizing the pastor, I mean, I mean, unless this is an Old Testament prophet, it's coming in, you know, and maybe I don't know, but but I, I just think that that's that's not appropriate. I don't think the, the spirit would operate that way. But um, this is I was I was actually pondering this the other day um, was uh, I was thinking I was thinking of you guys and I was thinking of the context of, OK, what does it mean? Because a lot of people are very critical. I remember one time I had my I brought one of my Christian reform friends to come visit the charismatic church I'm at. And I start raising my hands and he immediately goes and put stay, put your hands down at my church. I quit doing that while everybody else is doing that. <laughs> that was this reaction. like No, stop. You know, very strange, you know, and uh, it's almost like um there's a, okay, I'm going to get to that, but this is what I think. Um, I think so often the criticism is, oh, look at that person over there. They're putting on a show. They're trying to show how holy they are. And sometimes that is the case, right? They're putting on a show. They think they're better. But I also think there are times when the spirit touches you so much and you're feeling something that you just want to stand up and just praise the Lord and, 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 and just and share that joy that you have with the rest of the congregation. And rather than the rest of the congregation point their fingers and judge you, they should say that person's being touched. And then maybe that the, what happens in the charismatic and Pentecostal movement, that one person stands up. Next thing you know, everybody in the congregation is standing up. And next thing you know, there's just spontaneity happening and there's people speaking in tongues and there's joy and there's laughter and there's just, you know, power there that um, when you allow the spirit to operate, it can just do a mighty thing. It can pop up at any time. And if you're just to say, okay, we're going to let the spirit operate. You know, sometimes it's, it's not going to show up, but sometimes it will. And when it does, let's embrace that, right? Because to me, when I look at Pentecost, well, first of all, I look at David, he's dancing naked before the Lord, right? That's my, <laughs> so I'm thinking, well, so why would we be bad at this kid who's dancing in the, in the aisles of the church when David in the, was, was doing it before the Lord? And then um, the other thing is, is that um, I think that there is this reaction that people want to stop it. Like my, here I am in my own church, raising my hands. And this Calvinist says, put your arms down, right? It's a control thing, right? But it's also a fear. So when we go and we, we, these people are, they're, they're outside where Pentecost is happening. And they're like, well, there's a bunch of drunkards in there, right? They're all drunks. This is crazy stuff, right? So that, that's, that's how it looked to the outsiders, right? So now when we judge, when we see, the Pentecostals rolling in the floor and we're saying, that's the flesh, that's the flesh. Well, remember, it's your flesh in your brain that's also making that judgment. So sometimes you're going to say, you know, maybe it's the flesh, but maybe it's not. Maybe that person, the Lord is working in that person's life and we're seeing it physically manifest before our eyes, right? And so to me, it's like, there's this, there's this, the analytical side, the Calvinist side, the rational side wants to say, put those arms down, 
Um, I think if you can go, you can go too far in one direction either way. I think you should be rooted in um, your faith, um, but also be open to the spirit. And if you can just have that balance, you know, then, you know, like I said, if you have that balance, I think the Lord can really, really operate and powerfully manifest himself through you. And I think it's a gift that you should just accept or at least consider accepting. Yeah. Thank you for that. I appreciate it. I, I uh, wasn't sure whether I would share that. I don't think I've ever told anybody uh, about that experience. So I uh, appreciate uh, the opportunity to talk to someone who is a charismatic and, and get your take. So thank you for that. So, you know, you, you do have the the Calvinistic background and, and I want to kind of pivot a little bit. Um. We thank you for tuning into this episode of the Outer Brightness Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. Please visit the Outer Brightness Podcast page on Facebook. Feel free to send us a message there with comments or questions by clicking send a message at the top of the page. And we would appreciate it if you give the page a like. We also have an Outer Brightness group on Facebook where you can join and interact with us and others as we discuss the podcast, past episodes, and suggestions for future episodes, etc. You can also send us an email at outerbrightness at gmail.com. We hope to hear from you soon. You can subscribe to the Outer Brightness podcast on Apple Podcasts, CastBox, Google Podcasts, Pocket Cast, Podbean, Spotify, and Stitcher. Also, you can check out our new YouTube channel, and if you like it, be sure to lay hands on that subscribe button and confirm it. If you like what you hear, please give us a rating and review wherever you listen and help spread the word. You can also connect with Michael the Ex-Mormon Apologist at FromWaterToWine.org, where he blogs, and sometimes Paul and Matthew do as well. Music for the Outer Brightness podcast is graciously provided by the talented Brianna Flournoy and by Adams Road. Learn more about Adams Road by visiting their ministry page at adamsroadministry.com. Stay bright, fireflies. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God, the Word made flesh, the risen Son. Heaven and earth will pass away, but the Word of the Lord endures church would remain upon this rock and the gates of hell